Hello and welcome to a turning tide in markets sponsored by PSG Wealth. A shift is taking place in the markets. A low interest rate, high growth environment, especially in offshore markets, has been the general experience for most investors in the past decade. As with all things in life, markets also go through their cycles. And there are a few material shifts that experts expect will take place over the next decades. Shifts investors need to be prepared for. So in this discussion powered by PSG PSG Wealth. Our guest is going to highlight PSG Wealth's view on this trading tide in the markets, what investors can learn from it. I'm Diwa Gavaza, business writer with The Business Day and a financial mail, and I'll be your host for this very fascinating conversation. Joining me today is Adrian Pask, who is the chief investment officer over at PSG Wealth. Adrian, good morning to you. Good morning, Madhuva. We've had a couple of uh, conversations this year, and uh, one of the clear things is the fact that uh, all of these shifts in the markets, I remember our previous conversations talking about the universe of factors that tend to affect investment decisions, the financial markets, and the like. So over the last decade, investors have experienced some specific market behaviors. Could you perhaps look in the rearview mirror and explain what that market actually did look like over the last decade or so, just so that we have that as a baseline before we start looking forward? Yes, yeah, so I think what could be useful is to also maybe put into the picture the first 10 years of the century, because that does highlight quite nicely all the material changes that we've seen in the last decade. So I think the most key component of that is the cost of capital reduced significantly. So if you look at the first decade of the century, essentially the cost of capital was above 3%, where in the second 10 years it moved to below 1%. So it sounds like a a very small change, but the impact of that downstream is actually quite significant. I've seen as a consequence of that is profit margins grow materially. So if you look at the profit margins of the S&P 500, for example, uh, in the first decade it was around 7%. And then over the last decade, it was 10% and it's currently peaking at around 13%. And in our view, you know, it does put a lot of question marks around how sustainable that is. But obviously, if you aggregate around that 10% level in the second 10 years of the century, the returns are going to be good. In conjunction with that, we saw projected growth rates for U.S. stocks in particular increase significantly. And as interest rates moved lower, the discount rates would have would, would have also then moved lower. So this is essentially the, the penalty for the prevailing risks. And as the cost of capital moves lower, the risks recede and therefore also the discount rates move lower. And this really resulted in one very material thing over the last 10 years, and that's been multiple expansions. So what I mean by that is we saw the PE ratios or the valuations of these stocks expand significantly. If you go back to 2010, the top 10 on the, on the S&P 500, the combined valuation there would have been a P of around 11 times. Where if you go through that same exercise now, you pay around 27 times earnings. So effectively what that means is the amount of cash flow generated by a business in 2010, it would have taken you essentially 11 years to, to recover your initial investment through the proceeds and profits where currently it's so expensive that it would take you 27 years to recover your initial capital. And and investors are quite willing at the moment um, going in at those higher levels because there's still perceptions that growth will be significant, etc. And that's where we think 
we need to put some serious question marks around that because the last 10 years in our mind has been unique for this reason, that, that lower cost of capital that was introduced. We actually want to drill down, Adrian, into you know some of these questions that you are raising because there does seem to be a feeling that investors have accepted that this same market pattern will continue you know indefinitely. Yet you believe material shifts, as you highlighted, are going to take place. So you know, given you know what you've just told us, uh, you know, lower cost of capital in the past, as well as you know some of these growing returns over the last maybe decade or so. So you've raised your questions, but we want to focus for this conversation to say, what are the top three shifts that you believe investors should be aware of going forward? Yeah, I think uh, there's quite a few things that we think will change, but it, it all goes back to one first principle. So there's actually only one key change, but the impact thereof is, is significant. And that change is higher interest rates. And we've already seen this across the globe. We know what the Fed's been doing. We've seen inflation numbers across the developed markets come up at significantly higher levels. In South Africa, we've seen the same and we've seen interest rates move up. What we need to be able to answer is what is really the impact of that through economies, through companies? And how does that affect then investment prospects? So what we will see through an increase in interest rates and higher cost of capital is lower sales volumes as consumers obviously feel the squeeze. I think in South Africa, we can already definitely feel it as prices have increased significantly. And now, obviously, if interest rates start to increase, we'll see the cost of capital component for corporates increase because their financing cost is going up. But consumers are in a similar position. Uh, we need to pay our, our car financing and our home financing and all of that's going up. And that will ultimately reduce in less discretionary spending in the economy. So sales volumes will be under pressure. As I mentioned, the cost of funding is going up for business. So there will be lower profit margins as well. And to put even more pressure on it, it's not just funding costs that's coming up. It's the other inflationary pressures that are weighing in on the cost components of corporates as well. So generally speaking, less profits. And if that starts to take place, we'll see sentiment start to turn. And this is where I think we'll see the most fundamental shift because we'll see lower ratings or lower valuation multiples. So we've grown from 11 times earnings in 2010 to 27 times earnings where we are now. It's likely that we'll be much closer to that 11 again for the coming 10 years. So it's a big adjustment for investors to go down from their 20% per annum type of returns that they've experienced in offshore markets. And it's incredibly important that they adjust their expectations accordingly. Unfortunately, the days of 20% per annum returns from offshore assets are probably behind us for now. And uh, quite a somber note that Adrian is striking there, you know, to say that uh, some of those high returns from back in the day, we probably have to adjust our mindsets, you know, from an investment point of view with sales under pressure, the possibility of lower valuation multiples and therefore lower returns over time. But in everything that we're talking about, whether a person believes in the technical, you know, side of trading where you just look at graphs or whether you you believe in the fundamentals, you know, just going in, looking at uh, businesses. There's always just been this idea that quality businesses always make for good investments. Is this a myth in the current market? You know, because you know, some people would say that a good business is a good business, but, you know, it sounds like that might not always be a guarantee. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, we always need to be careful when, when we make statements about investments in, in general, because there are always exceptions around. But at the same time, what we do see at the moment is that investors have become increasingly casual about what they pay for earnings and increasingly optimistic about earnings growth projections. It is very possible to invest in a good business, but have a poor investment return. And I think we see cases of this and the risk of this uh, at the moment. So if you look at a practical example through history, just to illustrate the point, a good example would be Microsoft, right? So if you ask any man on the street, would you have wished to buy Microsoft stocks in the 90s and how wealthy you would be at the moment? Most would think that the returns have been absolutely phenomenal. But if you actually look at history, uh, the share price in the mid-90s was around $5 a share. And then that moved up significantly to the early 2000s to $50 a share. But it was expensive like most tech companies at the, at the time. But investors were sort of communicating that this is just the beginning. It's a great business with a great future. Um, you can't go wrong. But the bad news is that 12 months later, the share price halved to $25 a share on the back of that tech bubble burst. But the even worse news is that it took Microsoft shares 16 years to get back to $50 a share. And, and that just highlights the importance of when to recognize that there's already sufficient growth or significant growth being priced into the share price already. So in that specific case, you could say it looked like a very good investment, but it was priced in already. And therefore what you did see over the next 16 years was a very stale price not a lot of return that came out of that. And that was in a period where Microsoft was going through a very significant growth phase, capturing market share across regions, etc. And yet the investor returns couldn't keep pace with the growth just because the entry levels were so high. So long story short, absolutely possible to buy into a quality business with great prospects and have poor outcomes from there because price does matter. And, and that comes back to my earlier point where we think there's a lot of risk in the market because the majority of investors seem to have forgot that price matters and you need to be sensitive of what you pay for your future earnings that's going to be generated. Uh, You can't just buy earnings at at any price because you feel the business is a quality business. One of the ways that people do tend to decide that they're going to guarantee some of their returns, especially in some of these environments, is through the bond market. And I like the fact that you walked us through that Microsoft um, example just now, you know, just sort of showing that, yes, there would have been growth, but it wouldn't have been the type of growth that someone would have expected over time and especially given the type of growth that Microsoft itself um, was going through. And there seems to be that duality to say, you know, when investors can't get returns in the stock market, they tend to go over into fixed income and, you know, the bond market. So we've mentioned that uh, offshore bonds will not be able to offset an investor's losses, um, you know, on onshore equities during market turbulence. You know, maybe you could elaborate for us you know what uh, this actually means yeah it, it comes back to how, how we things will change materially in the, in the coming 10 years so typically what you would expect from a portfolio that is multi-asset investing in equities and fixed income for example in, in the offshore space how these portfolios have essentially inter- 
interacted with markets is to say, if your stock component in your portfolio is under pressure, uh, typically what happens is the yields in the bond market go down. There's a flight to safety and the bond prices uh, float up. So if there's a risk off scenario, then obviously the bonds will help you and vice versa. So if, if things in the equity market uh, look very, very good, then obviously the yields on offer will, will not be as great. And through that, you get the diversification benefit. That's primarily what it was all about. But with the masses of capital that was injected into markets, you see both bonds and equities run at the same time. And, and that again speaks to the point that investors have seen phenomenal returns in offshore markets, not only equity markets, even multi-asset markets. Everything's done well. But at some point, you know, there is an inherent cyclicality to, to investments. Uh, at a certain point, you, you recognize that bonds, yields just can't go any lower. And that's where we were at the beginning of the year. So what we did see, counter to expectations from the majority of the investors, is that both U.S. equities and U.S. bonds were under pressure at the same time. So there weren't any diversification benefits harvested through exposure to both. And that's quite material because that's a very different story to what we saw in the previous decade where there was this diversification benefit and investors tended to do quite well. Volatility could be stabilized and, and kept at bay to a certain extent. Where now you think you might be diversifying into an offshore bond, but now all of a sudden they are just as volatile as the equities and also delivering poor returns. So, so that's quite material from how we evaluate bonds and how do you, you need to be very careful of introducing low yielding bonds into an offshore portfolio, thinking that you will one, manage risk by doing so and two, have good return outcomes. Now, I'm not a fixed income expert myself, but I think I understand enough of the markets to know that the moment that you start describing volatility in the bond market, similar to volatility in the stock market, then it is a sign of an imbalance of some sort. And the fact that there was this run that you highlighted between the two asset classes, and that seems to also be slowing down, you know, to some extent, sort of shows the type of diversification that is needed in people's portfolios. And in all this, the onshore, the offshore, bond markets, equity markets, we can never run away from the fact that because we're in South Africa, there is a currency that we need to always be cognizant of, this currency risk, you know, whether the rand is up or down. And in a lot of cases, that rand isn't really up or down because of anything that's happening here, but more because of those exogenous factors. So there's a lot of confusion around that movement in the rand, you know, some saying that the RAND is a one-way bet. You know, what is your view on this? Yeah, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. I think largely South African investors always tend to think that whatever happens to the RAND has something to do with uh, the politics or you know, whatever the case may be. But it's obviously linked to the dollar and the dollar is a far more in the eye of the investor. So the relationship between the dollar and the rand is far more influenced by factors in the U.S. than factors in, in South Africa. So I think that's 100% spot on. What we do expect from the rand is for the rand to depreciate under normalized inflation conditions. But the problem is we don't have that at the moment. We've got very elevated inflation levels in the U.S. South Africa is also inflated and experiencing high inflation levels, but at the same time, not to the extent that the U.S. is experiencing. And for a long, long period of time, 
South Africa had significantly higher inflation rates than the developed market. That's typically how things work. But that's not what we've seen over the last two, three years. And the impact of that is quite significant because that implies that what we should see theoretically is for the dollar to be quite weak. And then by implication, by none of South Africa's doing, the South African rand being actually quite strong. So it's really important to keep an eye of what's happening in the US at the moment. And we look at inflation numbers. We think inflation is going to be sticky. There are factors that are going to unwind. So base fix that will, you know, sort of get out of the system and some of those prices will stabilize. But there's other areas that will remain quite sticky. And at the same time, you've got a, a debt to GDP ratio in the US of 140%. So that doesn't really speak to a strong currency, but yet we have one in the U.S. So I think I'm a bit of a, a lone voice on this one, but I do think the dollar is set to disappoint. And, and the RAND will then obviously benefit that as the, as the other party of, of that trade. But it's currencies and it's very difficult to call them over the short term. But I, I do think that there's very good fundamental arguments to make that, that says the dollar should be weaker and therefore the RAND should be stronger. But as I said, I think only, only time will tell. Uh, yes, certainly only time will tell. And I do see what you're saying because in a lot of instances, it does seem as if the US dollar does defy the normal course within which you'd expect currency fluctuations to happen. You increase your debt, let's say with COVID spending, and you'd expect um, currency weakening, you know, like what we saw during the pandemic. But with the US dollar, that is not what we saw, despite the fact that uh, you're quote unquote printing money, they were able to defy that. So you're a lone voice, but at least you know that there's someone who's seeing you, <laughs> you know, in that discussion by yourself. <laughs> so when it comes to all of that, rounding up the discussion, Adrian, what should investors actually do to prepare themselves for the next decade? You've certainly made quite a strong case that a lot of the factors that characterize the last decade seem to be shifting going forward. So how should investors be thinking about preparing? themselves, setting themselves up for success over the next decade? Yeah, I think unfortunately, you know, South Africa and, and South Africans in general have been through a very tough period. So the narrative that South Africa is moving backwards, uh, our, our corporates won't make money, it's a poor investment destination, all, all those things that we've we've heard. And, and in many cases, I mean, the fears that consumers have are not unjustified. But I think what has happened, unfortunately, is that there's been excessive investing in the offshore environment. And it's very difficult to, you know, on a dime, bring capital back. And it's normally investors follow those returns. So it's only after the fact that if we see South Africa recover, for example, and that's only when you see things turn, turn around and capital flow in that direction. So I think investors have fallen into this trap of having excessive exposure to offshore markets in many, many cases for, for the reasons I've mentioned. And it's very difficult for them at the same time to see the opportunity domestically, given the backdrop that I've described is so, still prevailing. There are many more positive signs over the recent years that things are looking up, commodities are doing well, etc. But at the same time, investors aren't making any big moves to bring money back to South Africa. And I think that's a mistake for two reasons. One, the risks in the offshore space have increased. And the opportunity set in South Africa has also, also increased. So in a sentence is don't let the, the fear mongering in, in the domestic space leave you to do nothing. There are risks in the offshore space that you need to address. 
I'm certainly not saying that you shouldn't have any offshore exposure because diversification remains important. But to a second point in terms of, of what to do for the next 10 years, it's just have realistic expectations of what your offshore portfolio is going to do for you. What role is it going to play? It used to be your alpha driver for, for the last 10 years. It's not going to be your alpha driver in the next 10 years. It's likely going to be your diversifier, your insurance policy for when things get really bad and the currency maybe blows out. You still have, you have that exposure, but it's not going to be your, your alpha driver. Your alpha driver sits in South Africa. So that means that you, you need to think a little bit differently as a South African investor where you were probably quite justifiably negative around the prospects. Dust those off and, and relook at it again and, and weigh up the equation for risk and opportunity offshore versus local. Our, our view is that when doing so, it's likely that you should bring money back and invest in South Africa again, which seems quite against what many investors out there are thinking, and especially so in the retail space. I think in the institutional space, we do see that happening. But I think investors need to be open with and engage with their advisors. You know, where people say, we think it's a good time to bring some of that excessive offshore exposure that served you well over the previous 10 years. Maybe think of bringing some of that back. So, so be ready for, for that conversation. I think would be, would be that advice. You need to think differently as a South African investor. Uh, those are the words of Adrian Pasco, who is uh, the Chief Investment Officer over at PSG Wealth. PSG Wealth just sounding the alarm to say that the type of macroeconomic environment that characterized the last decade and therefore the financial markets is not necessarily what we're going to be seeing over the next decade or so. You know, striking a bit of a countertone to what is uh, typically said out there. So I've been Mudiwa Gavaza, your host, business writer with the Business Day and Financial Mail, hoping that uh, you enjoyed that very insightful discussion. Remember that you can subscribe for free episodes on iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Cast, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts.